0: Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast, so here's your host, Hayden Bolick.
1: Welcome to The Working Therapist podcast. Thank you for listening. I am Hayden Bolick, your host, along with Kirsty Miles, co-host, and today she and I are taking a deeper dive into the evaluations with patients, and we are going to talk about what you can learn in the waiting room. Because honestly, with Kirstie and I, we've been treating for a long time now. And we've always talked about this. And we thought, hey, it will be a good idea for a podcast. Our evals really start in the waiting room. Like my eval starts as soon as I lay eyeballs upon that child, I've started evaluating.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, um, I think that a lot of therapists, sometimes when they see an eval on their schedule, they're like, <gasps> oh, another avow. And I'm like, ooh, an <laughs> <laughs> Like, I love the discovery of figuring out what's going on, connecting with that parent, trying to really get some good functional information to make a great goal plan for this child. So I find that fun. Kind of like exciting. detective
1: work, a little it bit. It is. Yeah, it and is. it's something new, different, fun. Because you know, whether
0: it's speech, PT, OT, whatever comes over on that doctor's order is... A little bit of information.
1: A well, lot times, how the child presents is completely different than what's on that doctor's order. So I look at the doctor's order, I'm like, eh, that's nice information, but that means very little to me in terms of what I'm actually really going to see, because also I don't want to be too, I don't want to have already made my mind up either. Right. You know, so if you say doctor's order says diagnosis, a child with Down syndrome, the doctor's order says the diagnosis is Down syndrome, evaluate and treat. Well, gosh, that could mean anything. I've got no preconceived notion of what I'm going to see or what I'm not going to see. I'm like, oh, cool. Because with any diagnosis,
0: there's so much variability from child to child, family dynamic. If there's a comorbidity, they've got multiple diagnoses. All that plays into it. So a lot of times we hear, oh, I need time to prepare for this avowal. Like,
1: what are you going to prepare? You don't know anything yet. I mean, yeah. really, what are you going to prepare? You don't know anything. I'm like, I got to get ready. I need time to prepare. I prep. need a clipboard and a blank piece of paper. Yeah, that's it. And a block of, well, for me, I need a block of an hour. For Kiersey, a block of 45 minutes. That's really it. Because mm-hmm. our motor avows are 45 minutes and our speech avows are an hour.
0: Give me the name. Make that's me it. a date of birth. Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> I, do need, I do need a name and a date of birth. You're about to learn everything when you walk out to the waiting room.
1: Yeah, you are. And your avow starts in the waiting room. And in our waiting rooms, we have these trade tables. We have these Big, humongous dollhouse things, and we have like some blocks, kitchen set, you know, your typical waiting room kind of stuff. So, literally, my evaluation starts as soon as I lay eyeballs upon that child. Kirsten, I thought it'd be a good idea to go through some of the specific things we looked at because we have done an evaluation podcast before where we talked about how to do an eval, but we really want to talk specifically about in the waiting room what we're looking at.
0: And it helps to get your questions like from the time you go from the waiting room back when you take the parent back. Now you've jogged your brain to be like, okay, these are the questions I need to ask because. Like, let's say mom's there with her baby. We see a lot of torticollis for physical therapy. And I've had parents carry their baby in or in a carrier, like wearing their baby. And mom's <laughs> filling out the patient paperwork and she's all fine and good. We've had other babies come in in the buckets. That's a car infant carrier seat. In our world, I call it a bucket. But it's think about it, it's like a bucket and a handle. Just from that alone, I'm like, hmm, well, I need to ask how much time they spend in that bucket. because. Are they getting out? You know, so it starts It starts your process of thinking about questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just an example of an infant, but we're going to get into some more variety of questions. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the first thing I'm looking at is kind of proximity. You know, does the child stay right close to next to the mom or dad or grandma or whoever – caregiver, person who brought them in, or are they kind of wandering around the waiting room? Are they pretty comfortable immediately? Or are they sort of clingy, like kind of cling on to whoever brought them? I like to see that, to sort of see what do they make of their space? Do they, you know, go freely away from mom or dad or whoever, and then, but they're constantly checking back, you know, with them, or do they go across the waiting room and they just forget that anybody even brought them here? Or do they go in immediately to the big Lego box and start lining up colors, lining up blocks? So I mentioned a couple of different, I am kind of talking about a couple of different things here. But the first thing I look at is proximity. What do they do with their just overall space? Maybe that's really not proximity. Maybe it's just use of space. I don't really know where their body is in space.
0: Well, proximity to their parent.
1: Yeah. And then just, and then what they're doing with their space. And then also, what are they doing with the toys and stuff in the waiting room? So that's what I want to see first. I'm looking at that. So I kind of want to know if, you know, are extremely clingy to their mom and dad, then the mom or dad is going to come back with me no matter what. But it kind of helps me understand, okay, Hayden, you don't really need to get in their space too early, too fast. You can need to be sort of away from a little bit and then sort of build some trust, some build some plus. It also tells me a lot socially that if they're really clingy to their mom and dad and they're really keep checking back in with them for like, is this okay? We're okay. Everybody's okay, you know, that kind of thing, how a baby or a child does. Then it tells me, you know, socially, they recognize people as people. You know, we don't diagnose a child with autism, of course, but if they sort of treat a person as, or me kind of the same thing as an object, like what can you do for me, that's going to totally change the direction of my evaluation. If myself and the chair are kind of the same for them and usefulness in the world, then that's fine. It just means my vow going to look a little different. I'm looking at proximity. I'm looking at how much they check in with mom and dad, socially what they're doing with mom and dad. I started to look at, are they playing with toys? Are they not with, playing with toys? What are they doing with those toys? Or are they chucking them at the waiting room people? You know, I had one little dude last week and he was playing at the train table and he was doing his things with the trains and he was playing very appropriately, really awesome. And then a little girl came up to him and he gave her like a, don't you even think about it. And she took one of his trains and he looked at her like, like what's going (laughs) and he didn't come out swinging but he was real close he was like oh I'm not sharing I'm not doing this it was good because the first thing he didn't cry but he looked like yeah this is not going to be pretty in just about one second I said so what does he say when he wants something what does he do if he wants something and he has he wants to get it what does he do and they said well he just starts screaming and tantruming and that we almost saw it in the waiting room I was like yeah I could believe that Mm -hmm. you know because he was getting ready to And there was no words. There was no whatever. There was just he was like, "I'm coming out. We're getting ready to get ugly up in here." So I'm looking at that. So I'm looking at play. I'm looking at what they do with other kids if they're around. I want to just see, do they understand the phrases that are said to them? Are they understanding words that are said to them? Are they understanding, like, if I say, okay, let's go play. Do they look up and look at me like, oh, it's some new voice, new something. She's saying something different. Are they paying attention to my intonation? Do they come with me easily? How do they transition? Are they saying any words? So they basically, I'm looking at receptively. Are they understanding phrases? Are they understanding sentences? Are they understanding words? Are they paying attention to when I say something and my tone of voice versus different than somebody else's and they are reacting facially different to me so that's receptive what I'm looking at and their play skills looking at receptively as well expressively are they saying any words are they making any sounds are they tantruming are they crying are they what is coming out of their mouth or what are they doing with their body? What do their gestures look like? And then what do their facial expressions look like? Is there symmetry in their face? Or is there some weakness on one side? You know, what does their body look like? How are they moving around the waiting room? And then do they have any facial expression? Are they kind of in a permanent smile? Like if one kid coming in and is like smiling all the time, probably not smiling. They're probably tight. Like their face is probably tight. They're kind of like stuck in a smile because, you know, that's weird. To smile all the time. So I just want to look at their face, what they look like, pay attention to all of that. And then if I do that, I can already start figuring out what test I'm going to give. So you
0: didn't pull your test before
1: you pulled the child back? No. I've got the Fisher Price Barn in the middle of the room because that's sort of my go-to in the middle of the room. And if I don't like that, as soon as I walk in the room, I can shove it with my foot out of the way and pull something else real quick. You know, I don't know if there are three... I probably pulled like the PLS in there because, you know, you can go a couple of different directions with that thing. But I, I don't have anything taken out of the box because I can shove that to the side, too, if I don't want it. Mm-hmm. But I usually don't pull Goma Fristo, Like if there are three, unless there's like six, seven, they say speech concerns. I'm sort of seeing. And then as I take them back to the room, I walk by the eval closet and pull the other tests I want to have out if I don't like what I got in the room. So no, I'm not got any preconceived notions of, I'm not doing that.
0: But being in the waiting room kind of helps determine which one you're going to need. Yep. What you're going to give.
1: Yes, exactly. Because I did have a therapist last week with one little boy. And this little boy, he's has several characteristics of a child with autism. Now, I don't know that this child has autism. I'm not diagnosing. But this little boy really wasn't really paying attention to what people were saying to him. He got in the waiting room, took the Lego blocks, and he was lining them up in colors. He was sorting them into colors and lining them up. immediately. It was very crowded in the waiting room. He didn't care what was happening with any of the other little people around him. He was like, these are my blocks. I'm lining them up. The only time he got upset or upset is somebody came and unlined his blocks or took a color and got his things disorganized. He didn't like any parts of that. And he had to have one of those blocks to transition back to the therapy room. So he wanted to carry one with him. He wouldn't, you know, transitions were really hard. And she had out the owls. Now he's like, three and a half, four. So she had the owls and she was trying to give him the owls. Well, this child was not understanding any words or phrases or, or whatever. He wasn't saying anything. So she spent like a lot of time trying to get the owls done and the owls is completely inappropriate and she's not getting anything from him. So really in that situation, she's probably not going to stand and have his test done. So we talked through that. And so really it turned out to be her plan with the owls because she saw his age and she saw what the doctor wrote on the thing, which is all good, but she disregarded really what the child was looking like. So she wasted like 30 minutes. She's only got an hour.
0: Now you only have 30 minutes to switch gears and do what really needs to be done to get enough information to make a goal plan. You
1: got it. So a little bit
0: different when we're looking at the motor component in the waiting room. Sometimes we're able to see is the child being carried in? Are they walking in? What do they go to first? Mom has to fill out the paperwork. Again, we have the train table. Are they playing in tall neil? Are they standing over the table? Are they pulling up to stand? You know, just looking at motor-wise what's happening in the waiting room. Is mom holding them, carrying them? Can they sit independently? It seems pretty simple, but we're a collaborative model of therapy. And we had a baby in the waiting room who has some difficulty with head control. And we're taught to pay attention to the details as therapists. That's what we do. So even as a motor therapist, I saw a bottle with cereal in it. So mm. I'm thinking... Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> baby, poor head control. The mouth doesn't outgrow gross motor. So wait a second. <laughs> this isn't good. No. So you have to grab those therapists. All, that all happened walking by the waiting room window. And she was just feeding her baby.
1: It was so- a good thing because that child has very delayed swallow and is a major risk for aspiration. They've cut a big old hole in that nipple. And even if it's thickened, she's pulling in the lecline which is a whole other podcast. But very good catch on Kiersey's part, by the way. Woo whoop.
0: But that was just (laughs) passing by the waiting room window. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So we see a lot in the waiting room. We see how a child reacts. We see their positions for play, how the parent's holding them, if they're coming in in the infant carriers, car seats, um, if they have any sort of ambulation devices, if they have AFOs, how are they getting around? Do they wear shoes? i mean we yeah. we see all different kinds of stuff so what kind of shoes are they wearing are they toe walking a child could come in for speech therapy and they might be walking on their toes i'm like do they have a pt referral
1: mm-hmm. we need one
0: <laughs> so you see a lot
1: yep are they sitting in the waiting room floor very slumped over to me that's mm-hmm. always a red flag if a child's w sitting playing in the waiting room and they're really hunched over really bad posture i'm like mm, they need a pt eval it just tells me a lot so if the same child really not talking too much or using very f- few words, but receptively they understand a lot more, like what is their core like? They need a PT eval because maybe they're not getting a lot of words out because they got no breast support, diaphragm control, that kind of thing. So, so then, that tells me a lot.
0: When you're like, okay, let's go back to therapy now. Can they walk down the hallway? We, over at Southern Pines Clinic, we have a very long hallway. We have a very long hallway at Oliver Street, West Gate too. So you have a long opportunity to see them walk. What does their gait look like? Well, there's your gait assessment. Yep. So, And I think it's important to say, I didn't pull a motor test. I might do the Peabody. If it's a child high level of involvement, I might pull the PD and I might have the bot on hand. But a lot of times, uh, to me, it'll give a standard score if I really need to get a justification, but it's not going to give me functional goals. It's not going to get to the root of why does this child need therapy. So I am very much for observational assessment. I prefer that. I think it gives me more in a session. I mean, I did two evaluations yesterday. I did not use standardized testing with either of them. And I think they have a very good goal plan set in place that's already being worked on today by the physical therapy assistant. So there you go and we're seeing some positive results already. So I don't think that you have to have a standardized test to fall back on if you can really look at the child and figure out what is the primary impairment that's causing the functional deficit so we can make goals. And a lot of that starts in the waiting room.
1: So you're sort of making a decision for a standardized test or not a standardized test based on what you're kind of seeing as you're doing your thing. So why would you pull one a standardized test over or not? Like what would be the deciding factor to pull to get that?
0: The, well, the PD is going to be for a child that is more involved and you can use it for higher age, but there's also, they need caregiver assistance. They need assistive device. That sort of thing is going to be part of that test. The Peabody only goes up to age five. After that, you're kind of out. So if it's an older mm-hmm. child, you're left with the bot. I don't like the bot. Yeah. I don't want to give it. I have 45 minutes to get a test done. It can take over 45 minutes to administer that test, and then I'm running into my next patient. And really, what do I walk away with having done the bot? Scores. Right. Scores that don't get me to functional goals that are really going to help this child. Able to swing on a swing because that's not on the bot. Uh -uh. No. (laughs) So, what do I need to look at? So, I kind of group my stuff into okay, let's look at some coordination stuff, let's look at some strength stuff, let's manual muscle test for an older child, let's do some balance. And then, based on the results of that, how is that impacting? So, mom says, Well, you know, I bought her a bike, she can't ride a bike. And I'm like, Well, she can't walk across the balance beam. So, how's she going to mount on a bike?
1: Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. know,
0: so now we can get to some more functional goals because great, they can stand on one foot for 10 seconds. But functionally, what can they do with that? Can they do a dynamic activity like getting on and off of a bike because they can stand on one foot now? Not necessarily.
1: So I think really the key takeaway from this podcast is, you know, you can't have a standardized test in the waiting room. So really, if the eval starts in the waiting room, what you know as a therapist to be, Accurate and appropriate and functional and clinical, what they should be doing at a certain age versus what they currently are doing is really what's the most important thing in the eval, and it really starts in the waiting room. So, because speech is so ingrained in us, you know, to, oh standardized test, standardized test, standardized test. I think it's a little less that way for PT, and I think OT is kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. But speech is so ingrained. But for, even for speech, you don't have to give a standardized test. E- even if they have articulation issues, you don't have to give an artic assessment. You can. You already know what ages or what sounds are developing at certain ages if you can't get it stop don't try to bang your head against the wall with like we got to get through this Golden mefristo you do not have to get through the Golden mefristo you can completely justify therapy without getting through an arctic test i mean if they can't say their t's and d's and they're five they need some therapy mm-hmm. but no standardized test needs to tell you that well and there's no
0: feeding standardized tests so no what are you gonna do nothing you're watching me. <laughs> Right,
1: <laughs> and <laughs> it's so all observation. And, it is, and yeah. and knowing what's appropriate at certain ages and doing certain things, and that's where I think therapists who are brand new need to ask so is this a, you know another therapist who's there one of the things i did early on in my career was i didn't have kids at that time and and you know i'd been through graduate school and we were so functioned on not normal we never spent any time on normal and I, at that time i was doing a lot learning trying to learn a lot about feeding so i would like try to feed babies in a church nursery like i would say hey you know, during church i instead of going to church i would go in the church nursery and i would just feed babies cuz like what do normal babies look like when they eat Or not normal but Typical developing babies who really don't have any feeding problems, what do they look like when they take a bottle? Because I didn't know. You know, So that helped me understand what typical developing was. And what, and it and also helped me understand there is a continuum. So, so just because a child's not walking at 12 months doesn't mean they're late or delayed or whatever, right? right? If a child's not talking at 12 months, that doesn't mean they're delayed. They need speech therapy. It just means let's look at the bigger picture. But if I'm just focused on that standardized assessment only, then it's kind of all about me and me getting that test score versus really looking at the whole person. And that's why this avowal has to start in the waiting room because you've got to figure out what this person's doing. Right. It's never going to be our plan. So so in the waiting room and in an assessment, I'm just assessing, first thing I really am looking at socially, what can they look, do? Then also play, what are they doing with play? Because play tells you a lot for, for a speech therapist. For a motor therapist, it tells you a lot too. But just from my perspective, it tells you a lot. If you are combining toys and play and functionally using them, then you really are understanding at a phrase level. So if you can take a spoon and stir a bowl and feed it to the baby, you're understanding at a multiple word phrase level even if you're not speaking, you're understanding, that's pretty high up there receptively. You know, then I know you're understanding phrases, you're understanding words, you're understanding for, you know, objects. You can probably identify objects. You may be able to identify pictures. You're understanding that words are symbolic. I mean, not literally they understand that, but they understand that words have meaning. So if I say cup and you don't see a picture of a cup, you get a visual image of a cup. You know, you can't do functional play and combine objects and play and not understand all that. You Just can't happen. So, think about a little person with autism who's lining up blocks and sorting them out with colors, like we saw this little boy doing. He's not functionally doing anything, he's just lining them up. He's not even really combining toys in play. So, you have to be able to combine toys in play before you can ever get to functional play. So, if he's not like combining two toys appropriately, he's lining them up, but he's just putting them next to each other. He's not combining them, like he's not. If I hit this, then the tower blocks is going to knock down. So his comprehension is probably not at a single word level or I don't even know if it's He might not
0: even have cause effect.
1: No, he doesn't have cause effect at all. So you got to be able to understand. So if you don't have cause effect understanding, then you don't understand if I do this, I'm going to get that. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole thing of language. Like if I say cup, somebody's going to bring me a cup or something's going to happen regarding a cup. Probably Mm -hmm. if you don't get cause and effect, you don't have that. Right, right. So the play is going to fall into the receptive language, what they understand, do they understand words, phrases, sentences, and their level of understanding. And then that's also going to be just are they recognizing their name, are they not? So that I'm looking at receptive skills in, in the waiting room and just with the functional activities. And then I'm looking at expressive is really what I'm looking at last because are they saying anything, are they not? That's usually the area where I can get the least amount of information because usually kids in a brand new environment, brand new situation are not going to usually be the, Necessarily chatty Cathy's, or if they were, they would be there to see me. So, really, the expressive areas where I'm going to get the least amount, but then that's usually where I start with the parents, like with my questions when I get them back to the room. So, that's what I'm looking at in the waiting room. You want to recap yours? Yeah. So,
0: again, for physical therapy, position is the parent carrying them in? Are they ambulatory? Do they have a device? Do they have any sort of equipment that's coming with them, orthotics, AFOs, that sort of thing? And then, really, positioning, positioning for play. So, how are they moving? Again, are they walking? And then a gait assessment on the way back
1: there you go okay all that's clinical assessment
0: and it really goes into time management with your eval because you've already started it before you've even gotten back to the room
1: you only have and my thoughts are you have seven to ten minutes for the history part anyway you're spending more than seven to ten minutes cut it off and move on
0: And then by the time you get them back there, too, like Hayden said, the barn, you know, I'll typically with an older child or anybody, really, I'm just like, what do you want to play with? So I get out whatever they're interested in. And then while I'm talking to mom, I'm watching constantly out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, oh, maybe try this. And then I go back to asking mom questions. So I don't start with just questions and just spend 15 minutes gathering history. I'm doing it as I'm trying to find out. What's going on with the child? Because then that spurs other questions. So if I spend 15 minutes just asking questions, I'm
1: going to have more as this goes on, and I've eaten up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. We're really kind of focused our stuff right now on sort of birth to five. Now, once the child in my world gets to be school age, I still only have about seven to ten minutes for the history part of it, but I can't forget to listen to how the child talks. You don't want to forget about that. You got to listen to how they talk. You need to ask them some questions they their school age. What do you? What's your favorite thing to do at school? Well, who do you like to play with you know what do y'all do when you play on the playground what do your friends do you know what some of those kinds of questions if i've got an eight-year-old i mean i can get a bunch of stuff from that who do you eat lunch with yeah 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 what do y'all talk about you know even if he's talking about like some kind of video whatever what's that thing of the video this summer remember that big video thing this yeah, fortnight no is that what it's called even fortnight i know squat dilly about fortnight but it gives me a lot of info and you got to get on their level yep, yep.
0: So as we wrap up, we just want to remind you how important it is to manage your time when you're doing an evaluation. It really starts in the waiting room. You can gather so much information to know what direction you're going to go with your evaluation. If you're going to need to use a standardized test, if you can get by without using one, because really it's not going to be appropriate for this particular child. And it just helps you to gather as much information as you can. You're never going to get all the information that you will know about this child from that one session. The name of the game is to get enough information to come up with a plan. We might not make the best plan in that first go round, <laughs> We might have to change it in two months or three months but enough to get the child started with authorization to start therapy because every
1: time you see that child, you should be learning more about them. And have an open mind so you can. Mm-hmm. That pretty much wraps us up. If Kirstie and I talked about a, a podcast we had done on avows, where we talked about the, how we broke our avows up into different segments, check that out on the workingtherapist.com You can see actually all of our podcasts that we've done. We have a lot of avow stuff in there so check those out and a whole bunch of other topics too. Thanks Thanks for listening today, and I'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com.